Hey y'all, welcome back to Nutrition Lifestyles. I'm Kim. And I'm Joanne. When people think of health, they often think of the physical aspect of health only. For example, like people will say, is my blood pressure normal? Am I the right weight? Am I eating well? Do I exercise enough? We often forget that being in good physical health includes the mental aspect of health as well. When it comes to health, one is typically healthy when both the physical and the mental aspect are balanced. In season one, specifically episode five, we touched on that topic, which is a topic that impacts nutrition and mental health, and it actually affects all communities. This particular problem has been shown or has been advertised to mainly affect the young proverbial white girl or white woman. And this is the furthest from the truth. In case you haven't listened to episode five in season one, we encourage you to go back and do so. But we are referring to eating disorders. Mm -hmm. So eating disorders are psychological disorders that are a result of a psychological and sociocultural factors. Additionally, eating disorders impacts men and women from all backgrounds, educational and financial standings, and at times are not necessarily due to the obsession of being thin. Very true. So in today's episode, we are going to speak with a good friend of mine who is an expert in the mental health arena. His name is Matthew Jean, and he is a licensed marriage and family therapist. And just to give you guys a quick background, Matt is committed to the banner of mental health awareness and fighting the stigma through his many entrepreneurial efforts. He has developed specifically three separate organizations in order to best serve the needs of the Afro-American and Afro-Caribbean communities of South Florida. He is the owner and principal therapist of Beachstone Counseling in Pompano Beach, Florida, he also developed a nonprofit organization, which is called the Go To Therapist, because he re- realized that he wanted to be the therapist that he needed 15 to 20 years ago. Nice. And also to make the fight for mental health into a tangible form, he created an apparel company called Sober Words, where he states that our vision is simple sending love and shedding light. He has launched several campaigns to incite a conversation on how stigma kills our community, and he addresses the issues of shame and provides excellent talks and seminars to educate the African-American and Caribbean communities on the signs and symptoms, as well as ways to support and help those who are suffering from this opioid crisis that's going on in the world today. Hey, Matt, welcome to Nutrition Lifestyles with Kim and Joanne. We are so happy that you're here to speak with us about how mental health impacts nutrition. Yes. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to actually share on your platform. So thanks again for having me, guys. You're welcome. So let's jump right into it here. What does good mental health look like? Or is there even such a thing, Matt, as good mental health? Well, uh, I'm a visual learner, and so I like to have people if they can put their minds in a place where they can see what I'm about to explain. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about mental health, I think about three major components. I think about the way we behave. So if you can see someone acting a particular way, the way we uh, feel and express our emotions, so our feelings and the way we think. And normally you would think of 
uh, mental health as just one of the three, mm. but uh, they are the three combined. So when you think of healthy mental health, you have to think of good and healthy thinking, uh, healthy and uh, mm-hmm. uh, expressive emotions, and healthy behavior. So it's a combination of all three. And when all three are working uh, appropriately, then there is no schism in between one or two of them. Let's say if your thinking is off, and then, then it will eventually start to impact your emotions, which will eventually start to impact your behavior. Or let's say it starts with a behavior that's not appropriate. Eventually, it will impact the feelings, which will eventually impact the thinking. And so all of them are intertwined. What I like to show people is that if you think of three separate bodies, right? The thinking is one body. Mm-hmm. The feeling is another body. And the, think, and, and the behavior is another body. If one goes down and they're linked and they're intertwined, combined by the elbow, right? If they're uh, locked in a chain-like formation, if one goes down, the other two will fall shortly after. Right. So if you're thinking about good mental health or what that would look like, just think about a person being able to stand tall and have uh, healthy aspects of their lives in all three of those areas. Mm, I like that definition. You know, because I'm a firm believer also that health is three-dimensional, as you just mentioned. So I like the fact that you linked all of them together. So let me ask you this question. How does mental health impact someone's overall wellness, like physically? Yes. And so um, going with that same analogy, right? Uh, when When we have optimal health in general... That's when all things are running full cylinder without any disruptions, without any disturbance, without any delays, without any uh, issues in our livelihood, without any issues in our daily functionings, meaning our mental, our emotional, our spiritual, our financial, our vocational, all these different areas are running smoothly Mm -hmm. because we have optimal health. When your mental health is impacted, the rest will follow. The rest will be impacted as well. Mm. Let's say a person uh, is dealing with psychological distress. And what that is, is that something that starts to impact you in access of, let's say, two weeks or more, that starts to cause issues within your life, right? And in any given year, by the way, I have to put this out there, um, one out of four adults, one out of four or one out of five adults, the statistics vary, will suffer from psychological distress in any given year, right? And so, but if you're of African descent, you're 20% more likely to suffer from psychological distress in that same given year. Mm. And then if you live under the poverty threshold, you are two to three times more likely to suffer from psychological distress in any given year. And that can be depression, anxiety, that can be um, grief, that can be post-traumatic stress. That can be a whole slew of things that can cause a person not to be in, uh, experiencing optimal health. And so if your mental health isn't well, then it starts to impact other areas of your life, uh, particularly the physical body as well. You know, people usually think it's the other way around. The physical body can impact the way a person feels, which is correct. But let's say if I am highly stressed, there are specific types of hormones that are released in a person's body that doesn't do well for that person's health. One of those chemicals is cortisol. Mm-hmm. High levels of cortisol correlate to unhealthy eating, cravings, uh, lack of sleep, lack of energy. 
and so forth. And so that can impact your physical health a lot based on you being stressed out, which is a psychological issue. Wow. I mean, you are breaking it down for me and schooling me right now. I kind of feel like I'm in a little therapy session because I'm I'm, I'm putting it together the way you're explaining it. And it's so clear to me, so much clearer to me, like how it all intertwines and affects, you know, each other. And, you know, you spoke a little bit just now on nutrition and how eating can affect our mental health. Can you elaborate a little bit on that specifically how nutrition can affect um, or mental health can impact nutrition? Yeah, definitely. You know, uh, when people are in, when people are in, in psychological distress, or let's say if you are dealing with any type of psychological issue, one of the things that happen is that your body isn't regulated. You know, you're not at homeostasis. That means your mind isn't at ease. Your, your organs aren't functioning at their best, and uh, there may be high levels of cortisol in your system. And what that does is that it could increase your, your blood pressure. It could increase your, your, uh, your blood sugar levels. It could increase your ability to fight diseases. You're more susceptible to fight diseases. But it also increases the cravings that you have. You, you've heard of people uh, that uh, they, 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 um, they stress eat. You know, they, they eat because they're stressed. Mm-hmm. And the cravings that they eat are things that will normally comfort them. Sweets and salt. You know, like if I'm having... A stressful day. I want some cheesecake right now, right? <laughs> and it will it will make me feel better about my day. But that feeling is only temporarily because it doesn't necessarily address the issue. It's just a temporary feeling that uh, that you get from the sensation or the reward of eating something sweet, which doesn't do well with cortisol because cortisol cause causes the increase of fat storage. You know, so when we do eat when we're stressed, you see a lot of people that uh, stress eaters, they put on a lot of weight because they're stressing, they're eating, and they're eating because they're stressing, and and it's like a a very negative cycle. So that's something that you definitely have to look out for. Wow, that is very true. Um, I know. Confessions, y'all. I'm a stress eater. (laughs) Definitely. But just to change gears a little bit, Matt. So last season, uh, season one, we discussed the topic of eating disorders. And Joanne had established in that podcast that eating disorders, it's not just physiological, it's more so a mental disorder. And we spoke about how eating disorders impacts the black community and how it can be easily overlooked in our communities because, you know, proverbially speaking, the young white girl, like she is like the poster of someone having an eating disorder. So do you have any insight on how mental disorders in general can impact communities of color? Yes. So uh, the history of psychology and counseling within the black community isn't one that has been positive. You know, there is, there has been a lot of trust, mistrust relationships with the medical field in general when it comes to the Black community. Mm -hmm. And if you go far back as to uh, slavery, there were psychological terminologies that that were diagnosable for an individual slave that decided that they will run away. That person was outside of their mind, basically, to run away. That was a psychological disorder to leave a space where, in quotations, I'm, I'm throwing up air quotes, that you had safety, shelter, food, why would you want to leave that? You must have a psychological issue to think that you can find something better than that elsewhere. So that's just some context into 
how come the black community have, has had issues with uh, our field. And then if you move up to you know, you know, 20th century, there have been a lot of black men in particular that have been black boys in particular that have been overly diagnosed with ADHD, um, oppositional defiant disorder, and other things that weren't necessarily true, but they were hired, they, they were um, diagnosed at a higher rate because of the lack of cultural context, of the lack of understanding the individual family of, of, of a lot of things, you know? And so that put another stain in the eyes of the black community about going to mental health. And then of course, there are the stigmas that are associated with mental health. Mm-hmm. If you even say anything about mental health or therapy, then the first idea that comes to mind is that you are crazy. Mm-hmm. Right? And so with all those stigmas associated with the history of psychology and counseling within the black community, it makes sense why they would feel, why some would feel the way they do about addressing mental health issues in their communities. Now, with that being said, there is a shift that is occurring. You know, there is a shift that is occurring to where we are seeing way more Black mental health professionals. And even though I may be seeing it, you may be seeing it because you two are both professionals, mm-hmm. the, the majority of the Black community still feels like it's a task to find a mental health provider in their area, you know? Mm-hmm. And so uh, when you think about how it impacts the Black community, well, it's transgenerational. The issues of our grandparents, we're still mm-hmm. suffering from based on them not having addressed their issues. The issues of our great-grandparents are still living in our bedrooms and in our uh, nurseries and in our playrooms for our children because we haven't addressed those issues. They're in our schools, they're in our churches, they're everywhere because we haven't addressed those issues. Because when we feel that we're inviting an external party inside of our house, Mm -hmm. uh, we feel that they are coming in not to help but to hurt sometimes. And so we are more cautious and more cognizant of the people who we want to invite versus the people who we think will be a threat to our livelihood, our family system, and the dynamics that we think are the best for us. Wow. I I mean, I totally agree with everything that you just said in the above in regards to it being generational and how it's like a cycle of we're, yes. we're stigmatizing and calling anybody who says, they are stressed out today or they are overwhelmed. Even me specifically, I can um, talk a lot about being a, not a new mom, but having like an infant and having three other kids and talking about being overwhelmed. I'm afraid to even say that so that somebody won't be like, is she about to, you know, go crazy or is she going crazy over there? It's, you know, you just feel so um, judged. I guess. Yes, that's that's a part of it, you know, the judgment part of it, because what stigma does, it's that it it almost paralyzes the individual, the community, the collective from speaking or feeling safe enough to speak up about their issues. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there are different kinds of stigma. There's the stigma that is uh, enacted stigma, meaning this is the stigma that we actually act on based on people having mental health, substance abuse issues there are specific needs that they may have that they can't get filled based on them having a mental health issue. Mm -hmm. Let's say, for example, if a student 
you know, has a mental health issue, they're afraid if they speak up about it, they may lose their scholarship. If there's a, if they're an athlete, mm. if it's an employee mm-hmm. and they say they're having issues, they, they may be afraid of losing their jobs. Mm-hmm. If the person is in the military, that can prevent them from getting clearance. So in all, almost every area, there, there are stigmas that are enacted based on mental health and substance use issues. And, but there's also perceived stigma. There's the perception of what people actually think about those that are suffering with psychological or, uh, or mental health issues. And if I perceive it, then it's truth for me. You know, if my perception becomes my reality. So if I think that if I speak up about it, my family will think I'm crazy. My, my friends will think I'm crazy. My friends will call me weak. You know, they, they will say, you know, then, then that will prevent me from speaking up as well. Now, that's the perceived stigma. There's also the last one I think is self-stigma. Self-stigma meaning the definitions and the ideas that are in our heads about ourselves based on us thinking a particular way about whatever title or whatever diagnosis that we think we have. And so it's a whole gambit of things that prevent a person from feeling safe enough to speak up about their issue. I am speechless, Ma. Like, honestly, I'm just here. I'm here like taking notes, thinking what kind of transgenerational issues <laughs> I have going on. Like, wow, this thing is deeper than, you know, mm-hmm. than we look at. It's, it's, it runs deep. It really does. Yes, it does. You know, one of those things about transgenerational issues is that uh, we don't necessarily see it until we take time to evaluate our entire system. One of the things that I do for every single client that comes in my office is I create a genogram. And what a genogram is, it's a family tree that goes specific into the relationships and the mental, emotional, physical patterns that were there from generations, from previous generations, and how they may be compounded over a period of time. Okay. So meaning, if you look back two generations and you see a pattern of substance use. You look in your generation, you see substance use as well, then that's a pattern. That means something wasn't addressed, precautions weren't taking, taken to prevent the next generation from having the same impact. Doesn't mean that someone won't be impacted, but if you have a risk factor such as genetics, then you are higher, you have a higher chance of repeating, you know, those things. And so with risk factors, you have to have protective factors. And one protective factor is making sure that we can be vocal about those issues in our household, making sure that we have safe spaces to address and to talk about these things without making people feel slighted, less than, or stigmatized. So is there anything we as a community can do? So we have a lot of nutrition professionals listening into our podcast, and we often, you know, come, um, you know, we have clients who come to us for help, but we are not able to help them because something mental may be going on that's stopping them from reaching their goals or making the changes that they're trying to make. So I have that question for you. And also what can the community as a whole do like parents who are listening and in the African-American and Caribbean communities, what can we do to help, you know, the generation that's following us or our families in general? Let's, let's start with what, uh, the, and the dietitian can do, you know, the person in your field, what they can do. I remember watching The Biggest Loser. That show was incredible. Mm-hmm. And I remember that there, there would always be a time period in every uh, season where someone will be pulled apart 
and they will start to talk about uh, their trauma that they've experienced in their lives and how that trauma has crippled them and caused them to feel like the only comfort that they could have was through their diet, through their eating, you know? And so they are highly correlated, trauma, stress, and diet. It's, 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 they mirror each other. If you want to know the type of trauma a person goes through, look at the food that they're eating. You, you mm-hmm. can almost tell that this person has gone through something because when we start to devalue ourselves, then we won't value uh, our health as well. Meaning mm-hmm. if I don't care much about myself based on the trauma that I've experienced that have caused me to minimize my worth, then who cares what I eat? Mm-hmm. Who cares how I look? Who cares how I feel? Who cares how people view me? I just want to feel comforted. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to eat what I want because it makes me feel good. And so if you are a dietitian and you're dealing with a person who can't let go of a bad habit, then it's way more psychological than it is uh, dietary. You know, that person may have experienced trauma and this is their way of coping. This is their way of dealing with stress. Mm-hmm. This is their way of dealing with depression. This is their way of dealing with grief and so, and so on. You know, it's also a way of self-medicating as well. You know, you don't want to feel so you use the food as a way of escape, as a way to numb, as a way to not think about. And so ask the question and then ask also if they have seen a professional or would they be open to see professionals in the areas. And I think another thing that you guys should do is make sure that you have in your contact books a local mental health professionals that are able and willing to assist in those areas as well. Mm-hmm. Now for the community, I think one of the most important thing that I have to emphasize um, over and over and over is to learn how to create safe spaces to communicate about our mental and emotional states. And what that looked like is that it's just being consistent and having those conversations in ways that we can learn what's safe for one another, right? And the way you learn is by having conversations. You can't learn any other way. And in the conversations, right. you will see when the person is comfortable. You will, you will feel when that person is comfortable. You will tell by that person's vibe that the person is more comfortable. And we can go there with our children, with our friends, with our family members, with our significant others. It's always good to make sure that the safe, um, I mean, uh, that safety is the priority. Because when we do have safety, we can communicate in ways that will be transparent to our emotions and to our more vulnerable areas, uh, to the more vulnerable areas in our lives as well. So safety first, that would, that, that would be my advice right there. So I love that, Matt. It reminds me of Maslow's hierarchy of needs for you guys that want a proper visual. Um, so the, it's like a triangle. Am I right, Matt? You're the expert here. Yes, it is a triangle. And the bottom is safety. And then after safety is achieved, then you can move into, is it physiological? Like, I don't know the order of it. Physiological um, uh, wellness and then mental wellness and so forth and so on until it actually gets to self-actualization. So I think, um, you know, everything that Matt mentioned, I think we as dietitians, we tend to forget that we just like to focus on the physiological aspect of health, because that's how we are trained. But if someone is not sound mentally, then it kind of defeats the purpose. So this leads me into the last question that we have for you, Matt. So 
The Center of Disease Control and Prevention states that depression will be the leading cause of death this year, 2020. Can you give us any insight into like how and why that is? Like it really just baffles my mind that depression and not like cardiovascular disease or motor vehicle accidents um, is going to be the leading cause of death. Right. So <laughs> no, uh, no shade. I'm not going to throw shade to the city. Of <laughs> but uh, I I always have to put an asterisk uh, by anything the Center of Disease Control state mm. is, uh, is subject to being biased. They, they don't mm. necessarily include uh, all of us in their studies. You know, mm. most of the studies, most studies do not. I right. So I will give you an example. And then I will answer your question, uh, hopefully. Um, in 1994, 1995, the CDC, Center of Disease Control, conducted a study uh, with uh, Kaiser Permanente yes. uh, on, on uh, adverse childhood experiences. And mm-hmm. in that study, they had over 17,000 individuals, which is a great sample size. I just, mm-hmm. I mean, I love research, so I'm salivating just thinking about it. That's 17,000 right. individuals. What it did, uh, these individuals were in their 40s, 50s, and I think some 60s, you know, midlife to, to, to early, late, you know. And so um, they did a full health workout on these individuals, checking their blood pressure, bone marrow, heart disease, cholesterol, and so forth. And when they found the results and they got all the negative health outcomes, they correlated them to their adverse childhood experiences. And in that study, what they found was that the higher levels of adverse childhood experiences, meaning childhood trauma that an individual has, the higher the correlation towards those negative health outcomes. And the threshold was that if you had four or more psychological issues mm-hmm. in your life, in your childhood, zero to 18, then you are more likely to, uh, to experience uh, negative health outcomes as a result. Mm, and so okay. this study was done in 1994, 1995, which is over 20 years ago, I believe. 24 wow, years ago, 25 years ago. That is crazy. And where is the outcry for that? Mm-hmm. You know, mm. Because we know this is not something that is uncommon, that the most traumatized areas are minority areas, you know, minority cities, minority communities. We know that for sure. And if this study was done in 1994, 1995, how come this isn't being uh, streamlined on Mm. a grander scale? You know, there was a TED talk that was done by Dr. Nadine Burke. If you have not seen it, please go see it. She's currently the uh, Surgeon General for the state of California, an amazing woman. She wrote a book that's called The Deep as well, well, I think. So you can check out that, um, that TED talk and her book that addresses mm-hmm. adverse childhood experience. And she said that, how come I didn't hear about this sooner? And uh, it goes back to stigma. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of us are afraid to address these issues and don't want to talk about these issues. But uh, I do believe that uh, depression is one of those things that is so crippling that it can cause a lot of different things like uh, substance use, mm-hmm. uh, substance misuse, overdose, um, heart disease, you know, and and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. And so I can see how they can come to that conclusion. 
But what I'm more concerned about is that there are other issues outside of depression that are doing the same things to our communities as well. And mm -hmm. one of those major things is trauma. Trauma, trauma, trauma. So yes, depression is the result, could be one of the results of trauma, which is correlated in sexual abuse, physical abuse, verbal abuse, and so forth. You know, um, And so depression is one of those things that we do experience, but I don't, I wouldn't necessarily say that I think it would be the leading cause, you know, before we get to depression, there's a chicken and that chicken is trauma, you know, and that chicken right. is a lot of other things, unhealthy generational things that haven't been addressed in our communities for a very long time, you know? So um, that's what I'd say to that. I don't know if I even answered the question. Oh, no, you definitely did answer it definitely did. And we thank you so much for that insight. So you hear that guys, we need to pay attention to the chicken. Joanne, did you have something you wanted to say? What I was going to say is if we're going to be looking at trauma, really the African-American community, if trauma is the, is the, what's causing us to be where we're at right now, we've been traumatized for the last 400 years. We are survivors is what I'm, I'm getting from this is that we're survivors. Yes. I, I love that you can come to that conclusion, right? But here's my beef with that. And I do have a beef with it. I did a presentation on resilience for Palm Beach schools uh, earlier this year. And we have a conversation about how resilient black people are, how mm -hmm. resilient you know, African-Americans are, West Indians are, Haitians are, and so forth. But if you look at the definition of a resilient individual, there is some type of trauma associated with that person that's resilient. Right. And so when you think about resilience, you have had to have gone through something that have caused you to come out as resilient. Mm -hmm. you know? And so, yes, you could call yourself resilient. We can say that we are resilient, which is true. But when you think about post-traumatic stress or any type of trauma, you think about soldiers, military, and how do we interact or react to what they're dealing with? We pour out all the resources that we have. We talk about doctors. We talk about dietitians. We talk about, uh, you know, we talk nutritionists. We talk about pharmacists. You know, psychological help. We pour out every single kind of help towards a person that has experienced post-traumatic stress. Mm -hmm. So why not do the same with a person that, in quotation again, is resilient? Because that person that's resilient also has a trauma. Right, right. That's there as well. We can't just say resilient and not address trauma. I love that we are resilient, but with that resilience comes trauma. And we have to learn how to address that as well. Right. I, I agree to that. Yeah, so do I. So do I. So Matt, just to close out everything, let us know where we can find you on social media. Oh, I have a whole bunch of them, so get <laughs> ready. <laughs> and they're going to be linked in our show notes, guys. Okay, great. So they can find me at Matt Genius, which is M-A-T-J-E-A-N-I-U-S, which is my common page. And you can find my, uh, my practice page, which is Beach Stone Counseling on all platforms, Beach, like as in, you know, the actual beach, Stone Counseling, Beach Stone Counseling on all platforms, which is IG, Facebook, and Twitter. And they could also look for Sober Words, which is the apparel company that fights stigma associated with substance use and mental health issues. They can also find a bonus page, <laughs> which is called Hip Hop and Therapy, where I dissect the lyrics of popular hip hop artists 
and addressed uh, the common threads of psychological, substance use, self-medication, all types of issues that I hear in the lyrics from a therapeutic perspective. Wow. We are so happy to have had you on here, Matt. And you've opened up so many more questions that I think we may have to have you back on here to answer some of the questions that I'm sure we're going to get and some of the questions that I already have myself. Definitely. Um, I know that you have to go, but, you know, we look forward to having you on here again. Most definitely. It will be my pleasure to come back. I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much, Matt. So, hey, hey, guys, thanks so much for listening to this episode. Please remember to rate and review. Additionally, we encourage you to hop on over to our Facebook page, Nutrition Lifestyles with Kim and Joanne, so you can get access to that TED Talk that Matt was referring to, the one from Dr. Nadine Burke on that Kaiser Permanente study. And also, you're going to see a visual there of that Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It never hurts to jog your memory or jog your mind on what the hierarchy looks like. Also, most importantly, I wanted to correct something. The last question that I asked Matt when I stated that the CDC stated that depression is going to be the leading cause of death for 2020. Correction, it's actually the second leading cause of death. So I just wanted to clarify that. As usual, see you next time and thanks for listening. Bye.